And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am joined today by my friend, Mr. Richard Hanley. Rich, that's me. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay. You doing okay? So we were talking, and we were just really more or less looking for an excuse. Like what could come? What could we talk about to do an episode? Because uh, I use, quite frankly, I use podcasting episodes as an excuse to talk to people who I feel like talking to. Uh, so you know, it's like, well, what what can I come up with to to talk to to you about now? You know, as an excuse to get together. And we were, and we landed on Teletubbies. So here we go. This yeah, it was Tinky Winky or Poe. That was the debate. Uh, that is the great debate. And then no one expected Dipsy to come out of nowhere and win the debate. Yeah. <laughs> thank, I thank God that I was too old for Teletubbies, and I believe you are as well, even though I'm a couple of years older than you. Oh, I mean, I would hope so, because that would mean I was watching them in my 30s. <laughs> but, you know, we, I guess we could have been exposed to them as parents. Uh, well, I was. I, and, my, and, my daughter loved them. Unfortunately, I, I was. I'm just the right age that Teletubbies played constantly uh, in the uh, in the very early two in the late '90s, early 2000s because my daughter was obsessed with them. Thankfully, that stopped. And and I managed to get through those those same years without uh, without too much exposure to that show. My kids were more uh, Barney. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, I guess that's like a choice between a punch in the face or a kick in the stomach, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, as silly as it is, yet They're I can find myself singing the songs along, singing along with Barney as we were sitting there watching. <laughs> I, I can remember, you know, the thing about see, I you not that I, I'm actually turning it into a Teletubby discussion. Sorry, but um, the the thing about the Teletubbies that drove me nuts when my daughter was little was that the whole thing is based on repetition. The idea is that little kids like things repeated, and so each thing that happens on the show, one of the Teletubbies would go again, again, and they'd actually run exactly the same thing because two or three year olds like repetition. So the problem is my daughter would want to watch an episode three times. So if an episode ran three times and they said again, again, two to three times in an episode, by the time she was done, I had I had heard the same sketch between six and nine times, and I had the intelligence of a Teletubby. <laughs> so it was it was mind numbing. By the time it was done, my wife and I were walking around going "Tanky wakey," you know, it was just awful. Yeah, that is awful. I have to admit, <laughs> and I feel and I feel sorry for you. Uh, I, I feel so sorry for me too. And uh, yet, uh, well, I mean. You know, we live close enough by each other. I did have to go to, uh, what is it, CW Post and uh, see The Wiggles live with my kids. Oh, wow. 
See, those songs are clever, though. At least they're actually speaking words. That is true. Yeah. So, uh, but I have lived through. I also saw Dragon Tales live at the Nassau Coliseum. I mean, I did my Thanks. share. Uh, but but let's 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 go a little bit closer to on t- on target here. Now I'm going to just throw it out to you, just because it's relatively timely. Uh, mm-hmm. And since we first became acquainted with each other and friends through Planet of the Apes, uh, mm-hmm. what did you think of the most recent announcements of the uh, the, the the plans for the newest movie? Uh, well, I'm just glad there is one because I was getting worried as time went on. Um, I'm, I'm excited. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's going to it's going to involve the new timeline still instead of just rebooting things because I really enjoyed the trilogy and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, it's funny because I'd seen websites saying things like, oh, you know, Taylor's crew is going to be in this one, and I thought, well. It doesn't make sense on two levels. First of all, it's a different timeline, so who knows if there even is a Taylor. But second, going by the original movies, it would be 2,000 years in the future, and I tended to doubt they were jumping ahead that far. So um, I'm I'm glad they're not. I'm I'm glad we're going to get more stories that are closer to the era of Caesar, because I thought I thought it was that that whole trilogy was wonderful in my opinion. Right, and this is going to be Caesar's son, I guess, isn't it, or is it his grandson? I don't recall now. Yeah, I forget which, but I'm a, yeah, it's basically going to be like uh, you know, like what they did with with, with um, Cornelius and Caesar, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, which which is good, and but they did, I mean, if they were going to jump ahead two thousand years, they did uh, mention the uh, also I'm drawing I'm drawing a blank on the name of the uh, ship, the, the Icarus. If, yeah, the Icarus. That's right. They did mention in in the first movie the Icarus being right. lost. Uh, so I mean, they could. Certainly yeah, tie that like into Taylor. Set that up a future uh, film. And as, I don't as, know that they ever get to it, but they were definitely setting that up. Yeah, as we've talked about in the past, you know, I, I make my head hurt so much because I try to take the original five movies and fit them into this continuity somehow, uh, which does really doesn't work. But I just do my best to do so anyway, because <laughs> because that's 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 the way I, I was raised as a geek. Uh, you know, you've got to hey, make you're sense of everything. You're talking to the guy who wrote Timeline of the Planet of the Apes. I, 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 I will bend my head into a pretzel making that work. <laughs> it doesn't work, and I don't care because it's fun. Exactly. But I know that I know that's not the case, but it's fun to speculate anyway. And as as I've said in the past, I do have Timeline of the Planet of the Apes on the bookshelf behind me. So yes, I am aware. Why? But I'm biased. <laughs> So off of the Planet of the Apes, we were talking about like what to do, and I was just asking Rich what projects you're currently doing, and I, I found this fascinating because you mentioned something with the Joker, but then also mentioned that you're really not that much of a Joker expert. So why don't you just kind of give us that and and how that develops? Well, I'm I'm um like a lot of people who watch comic book movies and comic book TV shows and read comics, I of course know who the Joker is. I enjoy, you know, I enjoy the Joker. I always have. He's hilarious. Uh, he's terrifying at times. He's hilarious at times. He's goofy as heck. He's disturbing as heck. It's, it's a great combination of the two. And when played right or when written right, the Joker can be extremely entertaining. I can't say that I'm an expert because there have been thousands of appearances and I, I, I have read a small percentage of them, but um, 
But, you know, like, here's the thing. If I were writing a book, writing a whole book about the Joker, that would be a problem. You know, But editing a book about the Joker with somebody else, I'm co-editing with my friend Lou Tambone. And co-edit, you know, and you, and you know Lou. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and co-editing, co-editing with Lou uh, means that, and having a lineup of about 20 writers who really know the Joker means that I don't have to be an expert. Um, uh, I just need to be good at editing. <laughs> And um, and I, I kind of hope I am, and, um, and and you know between Lou and, and my and the contributors, I, I'm co- I'm confident that the book is going to be good. We, we at this point we've received I think all but five of the essays, and, and you know they're great. They're a lot of fun, and they cover everything: the, the the classic comics, the modern day comics, the TV shows, the movies, the cartoons. Um, a couple people have worked some discussion of video game material, but not a lot. Um, and it covers all the different facets of him. So the the homicidal maniac, this the the serial killer type, the guy who would go out of his way to copyright fish, you know, like the, the various versions of this character that we've seen over the years. The guy who seems to have a to have a crush on Batman and wants to always impress him. Um, the very you know, so this is a character who changes depending on the writer, depending on the actor, depending on the medium. Um, that's what keeps the character fresh because really you, you know the joker has the potential to have been uh to have not had the staying power he has when when you consider that a, a clown in a you know in a purple suit who cracks jokes you would think there could be a limited amount of, that you could do with him but writers have just done so many extraordinarily funny things or extraordinarily disturbing and honestly i think the funnier ones are better i've always enjoyed them more I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, I like a lot of the more serious things. Uh, as, you know, you know my buddy Scott, and he, he will never forgive me for the fact that I really like the movie The Dark Knight because he can't stand that. Uh, but, I mean, that was more or less serious. Good movie. I'm sorry? It's a good movie. I, I think so. Uh, Scott, yeah, we, we get Scott on and we can debate that because he disagrees. Uh, but anyway, I, I do like well, he's, the serious He's definitely in the minority. The Dark Knight's extremely popular. I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, well, I, I, I totally agree. Now, the movie The Joker, I think, would even be more divisive because I think it's an incredibly well-made movie. I think it, it brings, you know, obvious comparisons to the movie Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I think it, it's it's almost by its nature needs to stand alone because when you start trying to put it into the Joker that we know otherwise, it I don't think it works. You know, we talk about trying to put Planet of the Apes with it. I don't know that that movie works with other continuities that we've seen of the character. Uh, and, and as you probably know, it originally wasn't. You know, it was a it was written you know about a guy in a clown outfit, and it was changed after the fact to be a Joker origin story, and that's part of the reason that it doesn't really work as a Joker origin story. I think it works great as a disturbing movie. I think I think Joaquin Phoenix's performance is fantastic. I I think Robert De Niro is great in it. I think it asks a lot of interesting questions and gives you a lot to chew on, and um and I really really find the character fascinating as a clown version, uh, you know, uh, of Taxi Driver. But I uh, I don't know that it necessarily works as a Joker movie. It, I think, it, see, I think it works as a Joker movie if you take it, 
if you take it somewhat with a grain of salt, which is hard to do when you're talking about such a, yeah. a heavy movie. Uh, but, yeah. you know, I, I, I compare it like in many ways, I think the whole part of the joy of the Joker's character, a part of the thing that just is appealing this is probably a better way to say it than joy, uh, is you don't really know where he came from and you don't know how he got to this point other than, you know, he fell into the vat and got the, the makeup kind of on him, which even that has been contradicted in other stories. But how he, you know, how his childhood went and what made him so crazy to begin with is kind of up in the air. Uh, and I think they played with that very well in, in the movie The Dark Knight because he gives like three different origin stories of how he got the scars on his face. So... You know, you start to wonder, does he even know how he got that way? Uh, and I, I like that aspect of it. It's just like I liked when Wolverine was a character that, you know, you didn't really know how he got to be what he is, and neither did he. And I kind of think that's kind of a cool way to, to have a character like that. Just, you know, but I guess when you have so many books coming out every, you know, on, on, on such a consistent basis, it it's hard to just keep ignoring that background and say, well, we're not going to give you anything. It's hard to stay creative and to do that. Uh, so, you know, eventually they did give us Wolverine's origin and they have given us things that give us hints as to where the Joker came from, even though a lot of them contradict each other. Right. Uh, right. So, but, but I think, you know, you, you, to me, to keep the character somewhat fresh, I, I need to have that little bit of air of mystery. So whenever they give us an origin, uh, whether it's in Batman 89 or if it's in the movie The Joker or if it's uh, what you call it, The Killing Joke, where they give us a little bit of a background. I, I take each of those as like an alternate reality and then I treat it as if, well, that's one possibility, but it's not necessarily definitive. I think that's a valid approach. And in fact, I uh, <clears throat> that's how I view things like star trek licensed literature when you know where the writers on the tv shows are not beholden to them and even when things are given arbitrary labels like canon it doesn't matter because at some point a tv show could come along and totally violate it but it never stops me from enjoying the comics because to my you know it's a multiverse and i just shunt them shunt the stories that get rendered apocryphal to another universe another timeline and i'm fine and i think that uh uh, so I, I appreciate the what I can appreciate the approach you're suggesting that that uh, that the stories that suggest the Joker's timelines, I mean origins are another, you know, they're different timelines, make sense to me. It, it's it's really the only way you can deal with things, uh, you know, franchises that contradict each other and still enjoy them. Yeah, and and <laughs> you know, I think you know we talked about you know you said you're you're not an expert, and and I think. You know, when I when I talk about comics, every year that goes by, I become a little bit less expert because I've yeah. had less interest in the newer things that come out. I, th I think by your nature, you're a little bit more interested in the recent stuff. Uh, but, you know, there have probably been dozens and dozens of Joker stories written since I've stopped having an active interest in new comics. I actually, it's funny, but I'm more, I'm, I'm less like what, what you just described than you think. I actually kind of stopped reading DC comic stuff after New 52 started. So I, I, most of the new stuff I've not read. I've read a couple of things here and there, but I, I don't really much anymore. So let's back you up a little bit then. What, what was your first real introduction to comics and how intensely did you get into them? Um, 
there are two answers to that question about my introduction to comics. So there's my introduction in the, in the fact that, you know, when did I first read comic books? But then I would say there's a second answer was when did I get into comic books? Because when I was a little kid, um, my cousins, Laura and Chris, had uh, they had a summer home and we would visit them and they always had stacks of comics and I'd read them while I was there. But I didn't, I didn't read, I didn't have any of my own. And they were things like little Lulu and, and Archie and so forth. They weren't titles I ever got into on my own, but they were fun to read while I was sitting in their living room. And, um, so that's the one answer. So my, my first exposure to comics were children, comics aimed at kids when I was a kid and, as soon as and and you know nine out of every ten issues had exactly the same plot, and then uh, as soon as I finished reading them, I, I forgot them. So the second answer would be when did I get into comics? And that would be uh, when I was sixteen, and I can even tell you the exact issue. It was DC Comics Star Trek number nine came out in nineteen eighty four, and the re- I find it ironic that it's a Star Trek book. Go ahead. Oh no! There's, it's not knowing me. It's not ironic at all, man. It is entirely expected. Well, it's just, just <laughs> and, because I know that you you have the background with you know the two things I know that you and I totally relate on are Planet of the Apes and Star Trek. So right. then, when we start branching out into comics, I find it amusing that it just goes right back to Star Trek anyway. It has to, yeah. See, the thing is, what happened was I, I um. I was never a person who bought comics. It's not that I had a problem with them. It's just it wasn't a medium I followed. And I was walking into a Walden Books one day. It was it was shortly after Star Trek um, Star Trek Two had come out. And uh, and you know Star Trek Two really really resonated with me. And I, I um I was uh, I'm sorry I, I meant to say it was shortly after Star Trek Three came out. Is actually what I meant to say. And Star Trek Two had really resonated with me, and and I loved Star Trek Three as well, and uh, and I was waiting um, for uh, new stories because I couldn't believe how Three ended. And I walk into a store, and there's a story that takes place, you know, right after Three. And I thought, what? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it, you know, it, what, what was it? Fifty, sixty cents, whatever it was. It was not a, a lot of money, and so I said, well. It's not really my medium, but I'm going to try it. And I took it home and read it, loved it. Started retracting down all the back issues. And before I knew it, I had a, a collection that is still the mainstay of my comic collecting today. And that was my gateway drug, because that got me reading other things eventually. Because, you know, you read, back in the day there were letters pages, and people would refer to a thousand different things you'd never read. And so you'd go, oh, that sounds interesting. And, you know, that led me to other stories. Yeah, that, well, did you get like wide into superheroes and stuff, or did you kind of stick with the licensed properties, for lack of a better term? I was never um, someone who read a ton of um, superhero stuff, primarily because it, there was such a vast amount of it, and I am a completist. I am somebody who says, if I'm going to read something, I read all of it. And if you're in, into Superman, you basically have to mortgage your house and then sell your children if you actually want to read every single thing that came out. Um, I mean, it, it, look, it, it, these days everything is available online, digitally, but that wasn't the case back then, you know. So 
it was it was cost prohibitive, it was time prohibitive, and it was overwhelming to me. So my focus uh, was more on licensed properties. I, I if I was into something, I read all the comic spinoffs, and but I did eventually. Like, I, I really got into Swamp Thing and, and read all of that, and Hellblazer and Watchmen, and so so there were definitely aspects of the of the mainstream universe that I got into. See, I, I definitely got more mainstream. And for anybody who's listening who hasn't heard my comic book origin story, I'll give the Reader's Digest version and just say, you know, I grew up in my, I have two older brothers and they both had some comics. Uh, and then I have some cousins that, you know, my mom would bring me to her sister's house and I'd be sitting there and, you know, going through their comics and, you know, all older than me. Uh, so I had, like you, originally been exposed to Archie and, you know, hot stuff and whatever other, you know, younger children's comics there had been. But when I saw like what my brothers and my cousins had, you know, I'd see an issue of Iron Man or Fantastic Four or Spider-Man. And I would just think, you know, that's what the cool kids read. Uh, and I, like you, can also t- pinpoint it to the first issue that actually started this lifelong addiction, which was uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 131 with uh, the famous cover of Aunt May marrying Doc Ock. Uh, and it was amazing how that just flipped a switch on. And I just became an avid collector that day. And I wanted every book ever. Down to one issue. <laughs> but I wanted every book ever at that point. <laughs> and and like you say, you know, not only were there the letters pages, but you know, in in these books they would have, you know, the asterisk that would tell you, you know, oh, we're referring back to issue this and we're referring to issue that. And every one of them would just add to the addiction, well, I need that one. And I need that one. It was good. It was good marketing to get you to read other things. They would also, in, in, for a lot of a lot of comics, would have a checklist. Here's what's coming out this month. And so, let's say you were buying Superman, you would also look in there and you would see, you know, that all the Batman titles that were listed, and all the Green Lantern titles, and then you know an Atari, you know, that was like, and you'd see all these different things that were that were coming out, and and it it, it was enticing. I ended up trying a lot of different titles because of that. So here's the thing, you know, when you're in, when you're in <clears throat> in geek culture, even if you don't master something, chances are you are familiar with it because it's hard to grow up reading Starlog or Fangoria or, or Famous Monsters of Filmland. It's hard to read to go to grow up reading the letters pages. It's hard to grow up reading fanzines and not be aware of everything that was out there, even if you're not reading it, you know, because articles about Dracula are going to refer to Dark Shadows and articles about um, about the creature from the Black Lagoon, or you know, they might get into Swamp Thing, or vice versa. You know, if if you're reading about something, chances are they're going to mention something else that's similar. And so, um, if you're reading an article about the making of Superman the movie, there, there's going to be a ton of stuff about who created Superman and so forth. Um, and so you end up absorbing a lot more information than you would expect to, even if you aren't into something so i like you i'm sure i grew up knowledgeable about a lot of franchises i never actually read or watched just because it was fascinating to me that these things existed and they were always on the back burner for something i would eventually get into yeah (laughs) i i look back and i find myself amazed sometimes when we'll talk about a different comic property on the show and 
I can tell you, oh yeah, that character. I love that character. And then when I think about it, it's like, wow, I really read precious little of what this character was in, but just through different references and things, you know, I, I have a connection to him or her. Uh, and, sure. and I find that to be fascinating. But bringing this back to the Joker book, when when is that expected to be published? We're looking at probably uh, being published in April uh, by Crazy Eight Press. And this is um, going to be all prose stories. No, it's not. It's not. It's not prose because that would that would be illegal. <laughs> it's uh, essays. It, oh, okay. it, 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 it would. Yeah, it would be highly illegal to produce um, uh, an unlicensed book of fiction. Um, the the uh, copyright laws would you know come right down all over us. Okay. If you're well, doing, I was thinking um, somehow this was like DC approved, which obviously. Oh, it's I not. see. I see. No, no, no. It, it's it's in the same vein of I don't know if you're familiar with them, but Jim Beard did a trilogy of books about Batman '66. Mm-hmm. They, they were like um, books. About, uh, it, it's it's in the same vein. The idea of an unlicensed look at a show. So what happened, this was basically Lou Tambone's baby. I'm just along for the ride. Um, Lou had this idea, because he's a real fan of the Joker, of getting together 20, 21, whatever. It turned out to be about 21, I think, um, essayists. And, and there's some big names in here. Paul Cooper, Kupperberg, Bob Greenberger, uh, Steve Engelhardt, Bob Rizakis. We got some big names in this one um, who are connected to the Joker and to DC Comics to write essays about um, about their perspectives, in some cases uh, their own history with the characters, and uh, and so each one it's kind of like the the books. More than anything, it's like the books I do for Seacourt. So you take a specific topic, and then you have twenty different perspectives from people of twenty different backgrounds, um, ages, genders, nationalities. You know, it it, it I, we try to get varied perspectives because you don't want you know if you're doing a book on a and the Joker, you don't want, you know, 20 essays about people saying, why is the Joker evil? You know, you, like, you want more than that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, for, for example, my essay is actually about Hellblazer. <laughs> uh, because we, we, we wanted to have out-of-the-box um, and unexpected perspectives. There's an, there's an era of Hellblazer, the one written by Brian Azzarello, that it, the entire three-year run is one big metaphor for Batman and the Joker. And so my essay is about how the Joker um, became an influence for three years of Hellblazer. So that's like a topic you wouldn't expect somebody to write about in a book about the Joker, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking like when they first started with like digital downloads of books that you, you know, and I remember they had like, the, you know, the psychology of Batman and things like that, which I assume... I assume this is going to be a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit more uh, ambitious than that. Uh, but uh, you know, along the same lines, when you're talking about licensing and all of that, that you know, it's it's, you know, it's kind of just discussing the character, not putting out stories about the character, and therefore it's acceptable somehow. Well, because it has to do with what what's considered copyright infringement and what's not. If you publish. Um, New stories in a franchise—that's a very clear violation. I, I can't—I can't go publish a Star Wars novel, for example, without permission from Lucasfilm. But if you're just discussing something, that's you know that's uh, that's journalism. Yeah, well, this so, is this is effectively similar to a review. 
Yes, I mean, it, as it, far as the legalities it of it. the same category, but it's you know, it's a it's an essay discussing a topic related to it. So it's not we're not really publishing any reviews in these books in this book, but um, but it falls into the same category, which is it's a journalistic look at a topic. Right. Yeah, and and I'm, I wasn't trying to say it was a review. I was, but I was comparing it to as far as how it legally. Exactly. Gets by, you know, to be acceptable. Yes, fair use covers journalistic, um, but it definitely does not cover adding to the franchise. So if, if I were to publish a comic and charge for it, that would be a problem. It's, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, fanfic gets in trouble sometimes, depending on, on the studio that owns the property. And that, that just got me thinking, and, you know, just, sometimes we go with stream of consciousness here, which... Uh, uh, my listeners certainly expect, uh, but uh, I remember when Empire Strikes Back was out, and they were started speculating as to what Return of the Jedi, which did not have a name yet, uh, but what that would be, you know, what the storyline would be, and I remember having a magazine dedicated to it that I was reading, and I I I, I, I probably poured over the essays in this magazine for hours. Uh, was it Star Warp? I'm not. You know what? I don't have any specific rem- memory of what the title of it was, but they had all sorts of speculation as to where the movie would go, and it was presented in a format where, you know, it really was fan fiction in its own way. But they were saying, you know, because it was speculation, somehow it it must have gotten by, you know, Lucasfilm's ability to criticize, or to sue, or maybe they did sue and I just was unaware of it. <laughs> but but it's just well, that's what's coming to mind for me because I remember them talking about you know Darth Vader with the Clone Wars and that you know he discovered that he had this Force you know connection and all of this stuff and it it, it was interesting to read at the time uh, and and it certainly kind of pressed my you know it, it it satisfied that thirst for a new story while I was waiting for the new movie. I bet it would be fun to read now because they probably got a ton of it wrong. It would be fun to see what they got right. I remember the the specific thing I remember is him being a slave, which kind of was true. Uh, And that, but they had him, you know, like kind of. Vader was going to be a slave? Yes. And and the prediction was that, that he would be, you know, like being whipped or something, you know, by one of the slave handlers. And then all of a sudden, you know, in his desperation, he would reach out and feel the force and choke the guy to death. And I remember that, like, really, hit, like, sitting there saying, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, they did predict the slave aspect of it correctly. They did not predict how he became force friendly. I wonder where they got that idea from, though. That's interesting. Yeah. Because there's nothing in the first two that would point to the fact that Vader was a slave. So that's remarkably um, prescient that they were able to foresee that origin. Interesting. And that's that's like the one aspect of it that I still remember 40-some-odd years later. Hmm. That, that whole... There's a series of books called Best of Trek. Do you remember those? Yes. Yeah, they were based on Trek magazine, and they had articles like that as well. So some of the stuff was humorous, some of the stuff was uh, silly, and some of it was, you know, there were actual satires. But the stuff that I always enjoyed the most were the speculative articles. And um, and so, yeah, what you're telling me is fascinating. I'm going to see if I can track that down. If, if you somehow find it, absolutely reach out to me and let me know because because I would yeah. be, I would love to reread it and I, I I've given you precious little to 
to, <laughs> to find it with. But like I said, I just remember sitting there at, at the time. This was I was in college at the time, and I was working as a bank teller while I was in college, and I remember just having a you know working on a Saturday that you know. In the bank, it would be like the beginning of the month would be craziness. People coming in with their social security checks, people coming in with their monthly payment checks or whatever. Like the beginning of the month was insane. But then when you started to get a little bit more towards the middle to the end of the month, it would you'd have days that were very, very quiet. And I remember sitting there at my teller window on a, on a quiet day reading this magazine during my entire work shift. And that, that's that's like the most clear memory of it that I have is that one part with the him being a slave and and uh, force choking somebody. That's wild. Yeah. Funny thing is that like it, if we if you're saying this was before Return of the Jedi, they they still had to had to wait several years before they found out they were right about the slave aspect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cuz even Return of the Jedi didn't give you that information. It, exactly. Yeah. It would have been 99 by the time they found that out, so another 16 years. Who knows, maybe somebody in Lucasfilm saw this article and said, "Hey, that's not a bad idea." <laughs> It's not outside the realm of possibility. Definitely not. Well, that's that's one of the things about Star Wars that I, I kind of, you know, I, I think a lot of people do is that, you know, the, the uh, falsehood that everything was planned out from the start and, and then. Oh, you know, that's so clearly debunkable. And when I hear people say that, I laugh because in, in the in the original scripts, like, you know, uh, Han Solo is not even human. And uh, and Luke and Leia are 18 and 20, you know, so there are things that. It, it's clear they're not twins. Han Solo wasn't going to be her love interest. You know, like there are things that are very. Vader was definitely not Anakin Skywalker. Um, you know, there, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. It's clear that they were definitely that they definitely were not the same from day one. And to you know, whatever you want to say about them going with the them being twins aspect of it, you know, it, it's painful to see. <laughs> the way Luke reacts to Leia in the first two movies and, and then say, oh, no, we knew all along that they were going to be brother and sister. No, you didn't. Please. <laughs> Just for the fun of it, I've been rereading the old Marvel Star Wars series from the 70s. I reread it every few years because I have a great love for it. And one thing that always makes me chuckle, it's true in both the Marvel series and in the newspaper strips, is that um, through no fault of his own, uh, Archie Goodwin spent a lot of time with Luke, really mooning away over, uh, you know, over over um, Leia, and the two of them basically making it clear they have strong feelings for each other, that they're not acknowledging. There are several kisses along the way, and then there's that kiss in Empire Strikes Back, and I think if all of that stuff had actually happened in, in the course of the films, that <laughs> I can only imagine Han's reaction upon hearing their twins like ew okay i do not want you anymore that's disgusting <laughs> <laughs> exactly but you know it, it's it, 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 to me I, I don't understand why they don't just cop to it yes we kind of did a little of this by the seat of our pants and we kind of figured it out as we were going along and we made a couple of mistakes along the way i think that's yeah there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you know it, it's funny because Look, you know, I, I have always loved the Star Wars films. I, I've worked for the franchise, so I, I have a great love and respect for the franchise and for George Lucas, but it's always perplexed me that <laughs> the, the, the dishonesty, to be quite honest, you know, with, with re recollecting how these things developed. I mean, 
it was always going to be six movies. It was always going to be nine movies. It was always going to be 12 movies. It was back to always going to be six movies. No, wait, now I wrote an outline for seven, eight, nine. You know, it, it, these things change, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm with you. Why not just say these things changed? That's how movies are made, right? Things change. And um, if anything, fans would have respected it more. If that were if that honest approach were taken, here's I realized this wasn't going to work, so I changed it. I, I don't remember where, but years ago there was an interview with Lucas, in which he said, um, it, it "Was this Rolling Stone? I forget where it was." The, he's the, the first trilogy I'm making is about the kids. The second trilogy will be about the fathers. The third trilogy will be about the mothers. Very clearly, that means nine movies, except years later when he was making the, this, the prequels, he was saying, I never intended more than six. And I remember that old interview, so I just sort of chuckled and went, yeah, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this, this was yet another example of, you know, of revisionism. And fandom doesn't forget. That's why lying is silly, because fandom doesn't forget. You still remember that article that you read you know, 40 years ago, I still remember reading the, the, you know, the children, the, the parent, the fathers, the mothers. We remember these things, and the Internet archives it, right? So why lie? <laughs> How do you possibly think you can avoid it being thrown in your face? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't understand that. Even, you know, even as a podcaster yeah. with a, you know, a modest audience, certainly a lot more modest than what you'd have for the Star Wars fans. Uh, you know, there's still times where it's like, oh, you said you didn't like this, but, you know, five years ago, you said you kind of did like it. <laughs> you know, so people have very long memories. Yeah, they do. And, you know, you have you have, you will always have a, an, an easy out on stuff like that, which is I changed my mind. Well, that's right. I, I think of uh, Father Guido Sarducci. I, I think he he had something to the extent of uh, it was like how to make a million dollars and not pay taxes or something like that. And he's it, when when you when you're being questioned, so you just say I don't recall. So, I don't recall. You don't recall. <laughs> it's like like that's his answer to everything, and you could just get away with whatever you want. Uh, or Steve Martin's was how to get make a million dollars, not pay taxes. First, get a million. Well, it wasn't step one. Get a million dollars. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, it's you know, I changed my mind is one possible answer, or. I totally forgot, and when I looked at it now, I just thought differently of it. Or yeah, I made a you're mistake. A different person than you were five years ago. <laughs> I made a mistake. That's is always thing. a fair answer too. <laughs> That's always a fair one. But you know, we're also colored by our, uh, our the experiences and and by the new information we take in, right? So I'll give you a great example. When I was a kid, I really enjoyed the North and South mini television miniseries, and I really enjoyed Gone with the Wind. And I have trouble watching those now, and I really enjoyed them when I was younger. And I grew up in a very left-leaning household, so it's embarrassing that I didn't recognize just how racist some of the things in these stories are when I was a kid. Um, it's very difficult for me to watch them now, even though I still think they're very well acted, because there's some seriously, oh man, there's some seriously cringeworthy 
aspects to both of those stories. Now, if, if it, when I was young, if you had said, well, what's one of your favorite movies, I would have said Gone with the Wind, and I can't say that now. Because my perspective has changed, because my experiences have changed, because the world has changed. And so, yeah, you know, if, if, you, if your opinion changes in a five-year span, that's entirely understandable. We've all witnessed that a lot changes in five years. <laughs> and and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, I can, I can personally uh, comment on my experience with Gone with the Wind because we covered that on Is It Yours? And we had some talk about not only the racism in it, but also the sexism in it. Oh, God, uh, yes. You know, where, where he basically rapes Scarlet and, you know, and then, and, and, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's good enough. Uh, and, you know, that happens. Unfortunately, it. the unfortunate thing, you know, the only way to continue enjoying it is to say it's a sign of the times, right? Yeah. But that only goes so far because there comes a point that we, sometimes where times have changed so much that it becomes really uncomfortable. And I'll give you an example. In addition to what you just said with that, with with, uh, with the rape of Scarlet, I'm a major James Bond fan. Love the love the movies. Have always loved them. But there is no denying that Sean Connery's Bond was rapey, and that Roger Moore's Bond was violent. And it's really hard to watch now. You know, seeing Roger Moore backhand a woman across the face, or or uh, Sean Connery's Bond basically force a lesbian into liking men by say <laughs> by not accepting no as an answer. You know, these things are not easy to watch, even though I grew up loving these movies, because I recognize how terrible a concept that is. So the only way to continue enjoying what is my favorite movie of Bond, which is Goldfinger, other than On Her Majesty's Secret Service. You know, it's funny, because if you look at those two movies, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he's really, really quite good to Tracy. And that comes only a couple movies after he basically rapes a lesbian. It's just crazy, right? And uh, it's hard to watch that now, because I, I see that for what it is. And I... I it's true for I think pretty much all franchises if you if you live long enough. I don't yeah. disagree with you. I, I I can't disagree with you because you, you make valid points. Uh, and and yet Gone with the Wind, James Bond, and many many of the movies of the forties, fifties, sixties, even into the seventies to some extent have those type of scenes where the woman says no, but the man grabs her and kisses her anyway. And then she just says, you know what? I was faking. I loved you all along. Uh, you know, and, and it's bullshit. Yeah. It's totally bullshit, totally but, but yeah. I can watch it and I can say, you know what? It was a different era. People thought differently. Yeah. People didn't weren't conscious of how wrong that was. Uh, right. And I have to get by it because if I can't get by it, I can't, I've got to eliminate so so many movies from my uh, consciousness, and that's what I do. <laughs> you know, I just say, yeah, that's unacceptable. Yeah, that's not good. But I'm gonna just move on with my life, and I'm gonna still say, Gone with the Wind is a great movie, and Goldfinger is in my top movies of all time, even though I disagree with those aspects of the movies. I think I think it's the only way you can enjoy it because because I'm like you. I mean, even though I'm complaining about it, the truth is I will still watch Goldfinger. So it, it um, yeah, that's exactly the same stance I take. I mean, it, I think it's difficult to um, it's difficult to see it when it happens. 
But do do you throw out the baby with the bathwater? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's a personal choice. But it is. It does make it difficult. Gone with the Wind to me is particularly difficult to watch. Um, and uh, so I, I that one has fallen off my list of, of favorite movies. But um, you know, but, I I also have the same attitude. You, you could talk talk about comic books, and when you look to 1960s comic books and how. I don't know that it was misogyny so much as just minimalizing the uh, contribution of the women characters. You know, they, they, they became, you know, they were the, the damsel in distress. That's what they were in comics yeah. back then, including Sue Storm, who was, you know, a member of the team or, or Wonder Woman back in the 40s, who was the secretary for the Justice Society. Uh, you know, stupid yeah. things like that. What am I going to do? I, I take them as a... Uh, kind of a slice of life of what ta- what comics were like at that time or what the perspective of people was at that time. And I move on, even though I don't agree with that way of looking at things. But just the same, the older comics, comics from the 60s and 70s and early 80s, which were not as enlightened as what we have now, are my favorite comic books. I, I totally get what you're saying, and I agree with you to, to a large extent. Um a couple months ago, I started rewatching the original series of Star Trek, and one of the things that astounded me, and the reason was because I had watched Strange New Worlds, I wanted to see The Cage again, uh, which I've seen, you don't even know how many times in my lifetime, but I'd never seen it after watching Strange New Worlds, so I knew it was going to be a, a different experience this time. And it's wild to see um, Pike's overt sexism after seeing Strange New Worlds. Sometime between The Cage and Strange New Worlds, clearly Christopher Pike went through something that enlightened the heck out of him. Because he goes from being arguably a, a, a sexist pig in, in, in really demeaning to women in The Cage to being one of the most compassionate, caring, accepting, non-sexist people you'll ever meet in Strange New Worlds. And I found that fascinating to see the difference there. In many ways, Anson Mount is doing a very good job of playing Jeffrey Hunter's character. Like, it's really a great piece of casting. But And I'm very... And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they should go with the other way, because I think it would be really difficult if, if Christopher Pike... It, it would not be pleasant to watch if Christopher Pike were constantly treating the women like second-class citizens. Um, so I'm glad that they dropped that. But it is interesting to watch The Cage after watching Strange New Worlds and seeing the difference. Um, and, and yet, you know, look, The Cage to me is still one of my all-time favorite stories. So in order for me to watch that now, I have to go in knowing that when it was written and when it was filmed, it, it was the mid, early to mid-60s, and the attitudes were different and the understanding of things were different. The way things were done were different. And that doesn't mean that it's acceptable that Pike is like this. It just means that no one had the foresight to know that in 2022, that I would be judging them for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, to each their own, I I've made a point in the, what is it now? 10 years or so that I've been podcasting. Uh, I don't judge anybody else for what they like and what they don't like. So if somebody watches the older stuff and they see these attitudes and they say, you know what, I just can't watch it because it's too disturbing to me. You know, that's fine. I have no problem with that. And I I hope people don't hold it against me that I can look past these things. Uh, No, no, and they shouldn't. But just Because I I totally 100% agree. 
I'm sorry. But just the same, I think that it's important that they do, you know, if you're going to revisit Pike, which they are doing, and they did it in Discovery, and now they're doing it in Strange New Worlds, that you do let the current Enlightenment come in, at least to some extent. Unless, of course, he was being written to be some form of misogynist back then. Uh, You know, if that was the purpose, which it was not, but if it were, and you wanted to continue with that, then you do. Uh, I, I get... I don't think you should have stories where you show, oh, and this is where Pike was enlightened, uh, because I think that that borders on and potentially would fall into just pandering uh, instead of just saying, hey. Oh, I wasn't implying they should show him being enlightened. I'm just saying that he seems to have become enlightened. I would, yeah, I would not want a story either because because that would imply Pike spent the first 40 years of his life a jerk. I would not want that. Exactly. I, I, I agree. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if you wanted to, like if you were going to remake the cage, then you write his character a little bit differently. Uh, but I think yeah, you yeah. also have to be careful not to, to overdo some of the enlightenment as well uh and and i I gotta be careful how i say this because i don't want to insult anybody but like we 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 currently have i don't know if you're if you follow sports at all actually but there's (laughs) there's you know a a big big deal was made and i'm not going to comment on the validity or lack of validity or anything uh but there was a big deal made about the team the washington redskins and there was a big deal made about the team the cleveland indians because people have become more aware that these are things that could potentially insult people or uh, minimalize them or or whatever and uh, you know again I'm i'm not getting into the validity of it but whatever they decided that it's time to change these names and move on from whatever mascots or or insignias that they have because they're more enlightened now and that's fine but now if you start weaving that sort of thought process into the stories 20 years from now because now we know people watch this stuff in perpetuity 20 years from now when this is no longer on you know on the the, in the mindset of people because we've already gone past it it's gonna it's gonna just i don't think it's gonna age well if you start making these things too prominent in the stories just Show the current level of enlightenment and move on. Don't don't necessarily make it into a big deal. Does that make sense? It does. I follow totally what you're saying. Okay. Sometimes I go on to these little rants and I don't know if it makes sense. And and again, I'm I'm always concerned that I don't want to. I'm not I'm not trying to insult anybody's sensibilities. Uh, you know, if, if there's somebody who who's feels very very strongly that this is a big issue, that's your right. If somebody feels it's a non-issue that people make into a big issue, that's your right as well. I'm not commenting on anybody. Uh, but I do think, you know, now we, again, we've changed these teams' names. We've changed their logos. Uh, we move on. And I'm just using that as one thing. You know, you could also go to the Me Too movement or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever whatever social uh, justice issue is, is currently very, very important. I don't want to minimalize the importance, but I also don't want to make all of our entertainment focused on it either. Yeah. So I, I think you know, that's that's it's it's a, it's a very fine line, and I think Strange New Worlds is probably doing it the right way by saying, you know what, that's something we made fifty years ago, fifty something years ago. This is what we're making now. 
we're going to have a little bit of today's values reflected in what we do now. And we're going to just kind of sweep, sweep some of the other stuff under the rug and pretend that that never happened. And I think I'm, I'm fine with that. I think that's, that's probably the easiest way to handle it. And it's probably the best way to handle it. Yeah, I think you're right. No, I thought that that show was 99.9% perfect. I thought it was fantastic. And, uh, I wouldn't really change anything about Strange New Worlds other than the Gorn. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in terms of the, the way that the characters are being written and performed, I love them. I, I think my biggest criticism, I never really, you know, we never really got into a discussion of Strange New Worlds on any of the podcasts. Uh, but we've talked off the record, The uh, my Listen to the Prophets crew, has we've talked about it off the record quite a bit. And I, I think that the biggest thing I just scratch my head is that we have to throw somebody from uh Kanuni and Singh's family in into the picture and I feel like that feels very forced to me that is a bit of an odd one I I grew to like Leanne I, I at first I wasn't sure she was the one character that I I wasn't sure I was going to enjoy because it seemed odd to me that throughout Space Seed and and uh Wrath of Khan that at no point did did, did Spock say Captain, I served with, you know, Khan's great-great-great-granddaughter. You know, at no point did that ever come up, especially with the last name. Like, once they discover Khan's last name in in Strange, in uh, in Space Seed, you'd think he, somebody would have said, wait, Leanne? Because she served on the Uhura. Enterprise. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that would be pretty because obvious. Because so far, Chapel and, and Uhura and Spock were all there. And it, there's every reason to believe that uh, that that Scotty is coming into the picture. So, <laughs> like, in none of them, in, in none, in none of their cases, did they think to say, "Wait, about what about?" I wonder if he's connected to the end. <laughs> Putting that aside, I grew to like the character a lot more than I was expecting to, and she was the only character I had any reservations about. And by the end of the season. Uh, well, I don't think they gave her enough to do. I, I, I actually came to really like the character. I think I wish her name were anything but that, and then I would have enjoyed her more. But what can you do? Like I don't write the show, so I, I, I can't. I, I, it's easy for me to be an armchair quarterback on that one. But I, I do think that that was a strange decision. But I'm, I'm in for the ride. You know, I also. Uh, I've heard a lot of people complain about the fact that Chapel, Uhura, and Mabenga are, are all on the show. I know people were a little upset about Chapel being bisexual. I have no problem with any of that. I think people get ridiculous. Well, I, I, I'm going to go... I'm not going to necessarily disagree with you, but I'm just going to kind of counterpoint that I feel like sometimes when it comes to things like that, it's it feels like they make such a point of putting it in there and it's just unnecessary. I really don't care about Chapel's sexual proclivities. I don't want to know. So, like well, to that extent, you know. But it's not even like they were throwing it in your face or anything. You know, they just mentioned she had an ex-girlfriend, and, and you know, that's just a, it was a, it was. I, I think it was handled very organically. I mean, your 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 mileage may vary, of course, but I think you know. Also, one thing that. One thing that is definitely true is that we are the sum nation of our experiences and the people within our inner circles. And I, I don't know like what your family makeup is, but um, my, my family is 
white, black, Hispanic, Asian, gay, straight, trans, bi, uh, Catholic, <laughs> Jewish, Buddhist, uh, atheist, Christian, scientist, Muslim, you name it. It's all in my immediate and, 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 and um, next level of family. And so to me, the idea that all of this is present and mentioned is just natural because it's my existence. Uh, so I, I know that I am colored by that. I'm, I'm glad to see the representation because there are uh, at least a half dozen, I have to think of, yeah, there's, there's, there's a half dozen LGBTQ people in my immediate family alone. And seeing, you know, seeing characters represented to me is important because they do represent a larger percentage of the population than a lot of people want to admit. So the idea that the future would be primarily would primarily have starships filled with straight people is, is unrealistic in my opinion. Um, so yeah, like to me, I get the, I, I think it should be there. And we, we, the other thing is we know so little about chapel, right? From the original series, what do we know about her? We know she does not make a very good Vulcan plomique soup. She, she, yeah, she sucked at the soup. Uh, she wanted to have sex with Spock, and she had an, a fiancé who, who uh, has not been mentioned on Strange New Worlds. We don't really know much about her beyond that, right? So if any character was going to be revealed to be bi, it made sense with her. She's kind of an open book. That's You, you make like a good said, point there. You do make a good point there. I, I don't like when yeah. it feels like it's forced for the sake of, hey, everybody, look at what we're doing. Uh, and when it's organic, I'm fine, I'm always fine with it when it's organic. Uh, so, you know, you make a decent argument of it being organic, and I, I can't necessarily disagree with you on that. Well, you know, like, I don't also don't want to try to change your opinion. I respect it if it's different. It's okay. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> you know, I, I like I, like I said earlier about, like, people liking or disliking things, I try to be very, very open to people who have opinions that don't necessarily match my own Uh and 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 I I always appreciate when I could have an a, not an argument a discussion with somebody about opinions that don't agree with my own and usually it's over very very minor things such as you know I like this movie you didn't like it whatever uh, but when it's an intelligent discussion as opposed to you know I I like this movie and here's ten reasons why I liked it yeah well I hated it because it sucks <laughs> you know <laughs> that's the conversation I don't want to have. Uh, I'm totally with you. But but anybody who presents an intelligent our, point of view on something, I'm more than more than open to hear it always. Absolutely. That's why our Teletubby discussion didn't come to fisticuffs. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it's you know we we talk we've talked about it like with sometimes with the comic adaptations on the screen. Um, did you, have you seen Wakanda Forever? Have mm -hmm. okay, so now you know discussing uh, the way Namor is shown in that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know they they show the character and spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the movie yet. Uh, they show the character or the Atlanteans, which they're not even called Atlanteans in the movie, and that's fine because probably they didn't want to take a chance on having people compare it to the Aquaman movie. Uh, but anyway, right. their civilization that they apparently were South Americans and eventually became aquatic uh so you know the submariner is shown as as you know you know kind of latin uh with an accent and and all of that and that's all fine because it's kind of an explanation that makes sense and i'm good with that but 
and I'm going to throw the butt on there. And this is this is kind of my argument with anybody that they change their story to make it fit. I grew up with the character. Submarine has been around since 1939, I believe. Uh, and I have a certain image in my mind of what the character is. So when you change it, I'm always going to be a little resistant to it. That doesn't necessarily mean I can't adapt. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the change isn't good. But I'm always, every time I look for a character to be adapted to, to the movies or TV, I'm looking for it to be the character I grew up with. And I'm always going to have I, a little bit of resistance when they change it. Yeah, I get that. Uh, one, you know, it, it's frustrating when something is adapted and you can't connect with the way the character has been adapted to because, because it throws you out of it, and then you find yourself saying, you know, why fix something that wasn't broken? Um, and a lot, of, yeah, a lot of times it is, I, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of times it's for the sake of getting representation. You want to have, right. you want to have the, the various groups and, and attitudes all represented, which is cool. I, I am all for that. Uh, more often than not, my answer is if you want to have a character that represents whatever group, I don't even need to, to specify, uh, I would prefer that you create a new character that does that. I, I would rather do that than take an existing character and change it, but that doesn't always work either. Yeah. You know, they, they uh, you know, the, I, I don't know, like, I'm surprised at how well I think they did the progression to make Hikaru Sulu gay. Which really was kind of lining it up with the fact that George Takei is gay. Uh, but the character was never gay in anything I ever saw. And then in Star Trek Generations, they introduce his daughter, which makes you think, you know, he had a heterosexual relationship. And then in, in uh, was it Star Trek Beyond, they kind of show the character as having been gay with a daughter. And it's kind of just like it, it just flowed okay to me. And it didn't bother me in the slightest that they changed the character. Didn't bother me either. In, in my head, in my head, uh, Sulu is bi simply because he's had so many, um, so many uh, love interests, even just in the comics. Is you know he's had a ton of girlfriends. But IDW actually did a story in which it's called Year Five, in which he became romantically involved uh, with a, a person from a species who are gender fluid and this character starts off as male and becomes female as the story goes on and uh and sulu is involved with with both aspects and i thought it was very well done and it did a great job of bridging um bridging the idea that sulu has had these girlfriends and licensed lore and what we saw and beyond i liked it yeah, I, you know, and it's it's kind of hard to mesh my different feelings because I don't like when they change characters. But then when they, you know, very often they change them and it doesn't bother me at all. I always go back to my, my bottom line on it is always that I go back to just don't change anything that fundamentally makes the character what that character is. Uh, so so with that in mind, then I have a question for you. I remember back when Bernie Casey played Felix Leiter, uh, and then when they when they brought Leiter, you know, when then Leiter appeared in the Daniel Craig films. In both cases, 
Felix Slider was black. And I, I thought both actors, Jeffrey Wright and, Fe- and, and Bernie Casey, are really fun as Felix Slider. Felix Slider is one of those characters who a ton of different actors have played him, and half of them didn't do a good job. <laughs> but, but Bernie Casey and Jeffrey Wright were both really good. But if you ever read Ian Fleming's novels, Felix Slider's pretty much a racist against black people. And so I remember when Bernie Casey played the character, and a friend of mine was very upset about the idea that a character who, um, in canon, as he, uh, they weren't using the term then because people didn't overuse that term then, but that in the source material uh, used some pretty vile language when it came to black people was now a black man. And my response then is the same as it would be now. Would you rather see Felix Leiter on screen saying the N-word? Why in the world would that be better? Right? Like the idea that, that you removed that aspect of the character is a good thing. I, I, so I'm curious what's your opinion of that is. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Now, I have not read the novels. I've tried to read novels, James Bond novels over the years, but they just don't engage me the way the films do. Uh, so yeah. I haven't really, so well, I wasn't I familiar with that aspect of him. But what I could tell you is from my working with with the characters or you know through the movies and all uh in no set order my favorite mm-hmm. felix lighters uh well number one is definitely jack lord i love jack lord in the role uh but after that uh bernie casey jeffrey wright and david Hedison are my next three favorites in some order i don't know what order i'd put them in you just named the four good ones so yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. Those are the four that really stand out. I, I like I Jack Lord the most because I felt like he was truly at James Bond's level. Yeah. You know, the Jack Lord version, I think, is great. He's very different than Ian Fleming's uh, um, Felix Leiter, but uh, but I like him. Um, the, the, the funny thing is when you watch the movies in order... It gets hilarious how Leiter gets older and younger and taller and shorter and his accent changes and his entire attitude on life changes. It's weird. It's a really weird casting joke. And I know it, it all stems down to the fact that Jack Lord wanted more money and they so they replaced him. And then it became a running joke to have him be somebody different every single time for the most part. But it is weird <laughs> how he's like, he's a surfer dude, he's an old guy in a hat. I mean, it's just bizarre. Well, that's, that's the um, funny thing is my favorite James Bond movie, and yeah. I think yours as well, is Goldfinger. And yet I feel like they have the worst Felix Leiter. <laughs> oh, good God, that Felix, you know. <laughs> ah, oh, James! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just bad. But... Yeah, my favorite is, it, my, I think, you know, depending on what my mood is, Goldfinger and On Her Majesty's Secret Service are the ones I go back and forth over. Um, I think over time, On Her Majesty's Secret Service has edged it out because it's it, it doesn't have some of the more problematic aspects of Goldfinger. And also because I just really uh, adore the character of Tracy. I think she's such a, a well-written and... And, and multifaceted character who does not have the same unfortunate limitations that a, a lot of the women in the early Bond films had. Um, I love her. I, so I, so that, that, that raises that movie up for me. But Goldfinger, I have always had a massive appreciation for. You know, despite the, the, despite the unfortunate and regrettable aspects to it. Yeah, I, I 
don't necessarily disagree with anything you're saying. What I don't like, again, yeah. like I said, is when they change something that's fundamental to the character. Uh, I, I usually cite uh, the fantastic, the most recent Fantastic Four movie uh, with them making Johnny Storm black, which I in and of itself do not have a problem with. But I do have a problem with them making Johnny Storm black and leaving Sue Storm as white. Because I think fundamental to the character is that they grew up as brother and sister, not that he was adopted. So if you want to make him black, then make her black too. So I didn't see the movie. So oh, the movie is I'd awful. I'm, I'm talking just casting now, not even the oh. movie itself. The movie is awful. I'm just curious, though. Did, did they grow up together? How old was he when he was adopted? I think he was, I, if I remember right, I think he was supposed to be a teenager when he was adopted. Teenager, okay. See... I would not in any way have, you know, and I totally respect your different opinion here. For me, it would not bother me in the slightest that they were different skin colors um, or that he was adopted because uh, in both cases, it's a matter of representation, you know. But I, but the fact that he was a teenager when he came into her life, that is a bigger issue for me because that does fundamentally well, If he was adopted as an infant, I think I right. would probably have adjusted much better to it. Uh, but but yeah, the movie yeah, is awful the anyway, so it doesn't even matter. There's so many problems with that here. film that that I'm I'm just scraping the surface. Yeah, I, I didn't. It, it didn't. The commercials just look so bad that I didn't bother. But to me, I I think there's three separate aspects to what you're saying: the different skin color, the adoption, uh, and the fact that he was a teenager when he came into her life. And for me, the first two are would not be an issue. But the fact that they didn't grow up together fundamentally changes their relationship. So that one I would have I, I would have I would have squirmed a little bit about. You know, and then um, you, you know you, you have you have other characters thought, like Luke Cage, you know, who was created out of the out of the black black exploitation era. Uh, yeah. you, if you you know you decide to make the the same you know hero for hire movie and you cast a white guy as Luke Cage, I think that's fundamentally changing the character, and I would not like it. <laughs> So, you know, it's... No, I'm with you. you know, I hate when they do... It, it's one of the big problems I had with Star Trek Into Darkness, actually. Oh, change, the, the change uh, of color. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, I, I love Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he's one of the... He's, he, he's a guy who can pretty much do no wrong. So I don't blame him for the movie. But but taking a, a Sikh Indian portrayed by a non-white actor and, and, and finding a very pasty-faced Brit to play him... I don't care how good Benedict Cumberbatch is as an actor. That, that, that's offensive, you know? So I, I'm really surprised, given when that movie was made, I'm surprised it happened. Because it's not like whitewashing was a new issue at that issue. I, it, it's just, it, it, it really stood out to me that I was surprised that nobody involved realized that that would be a problem. I, I just don't know what the thinking was on that movie, because if they had made him the exact character he was, but just never made him into Kanani and Singh and didn't try and mirror the end of Star Trek 2, I think it would have been a far superior movie to what it was. Did, did you and I ever discuss this before? Because I have a, a, a thing I was going to say, but I didn't want to like bore you by saying something I'd already said. Uh, no, we, we haven't, and, and just for what it's worth, uh, anybody listening, uh, we have talked about doing Is It Yours episodes on Star Trek movies, so we probably will have a more lengthy discussion about this somewhere down the line, but in the meanwhile, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, count me in. Here's the thing about about that, that movie. I, 
I think Star Trek Into Darkness could have turned out to be a four-star film. And in many ways, up until the con reveal, I think it's brilliant. I think it falls apart with the con reveal because from that point on, the movie changes. It ceases to be a film that's making a statement about terrorism, and it be, just becomes a ripoff of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. You know, like the whole, like from that point forward, so many aspects of the movie start paralleling Wrath of Khan in ways that are undeserved. Like, you know, when Spock yelling in anger, you know, doesn't make any sense given that this is the second of two movies and they haven't gotten along up until that point. So why is he this upset? It's not earned. It's different when Spock dies in Wrath of Khan and Kirk breaks down. That's totally earned after 20 years of the franchise. So. So things that don't make any sense in, 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 uh, happen in the second half. But imagine this. Imagine that you make uh, in, Into Darkness and you, pay, you, you, you capture, you know, capture, I meant to say cast. Don't capture Benedict Cumberbatch. That's not fair. He's a nice guy. Cast is what I meant to say. You cast Benedict Cumberbatch and you don't have him play Khan. You have him play Joaquin. And here's the reason I say that. Uh, go to Google Images and look up Judson Scott Joaquin. Benedict Cumberbatch. You will find pictures of the two of them next to each other. Benedict Cumberbatch looks just like Judson Scott. They have the same facial structure. So imagine this. In this other timeline, um, Admiral Marcus doesn't go to the same um, cryotube first that Kirk did. Kirk went to Joaquin. I mean, to Khan's. What if Benedict, if Admiral Marcus went to Joaquin's? So he woke that guy up instead. Now everything about that movie suddenly makes sense. Why is he white? What? Why is he built differently? Why is his personality so different? Uh, <clears throat> why is he? Uh, why? Why does he have abilities the other Khan didn't seem to have with the super blood? All of this could be accounted for if he's not Khan, right? And it wouldn't violate anything. It wouldn't be whitewashing. And, and if anything, it would be a really innovative way to do to do Wrath of Khan, which is Wrath of Khan minus Khan. Do Wrath of Joaquin. Now it's kind of cool that somebody noticed how much Judson Scott looks like Benedict Cumberbatch, and I think that movie would have been ten times better. But no, they had to shoehorn Khan in. And for a mistaken reason, there's this idea, it's even said in the movie, they have Spock say, the most formidable enemy we ever met, and the most dangerous, I forget what the line was. But even that's ridiculous, right? They met him twice, and in both cases he was defeated. <laughs> and... Meanwhile, they've fought the Romulans and they've fought the Klingons and they fought the the the, the Borg and I mean, not the Borg, the Gorn. I mean, they fought the Doomsday Machine. They fought. They they, they encountered V'ger. Uh, the world was almost destroyed by something that just wanted to talk to whales. How is Khan the most dangerous thing they ever encountered? So there's my really long-winded answer, which is that everything that goes wrong with that movie comes with the line, my name is Khan. And if they had removed that, I think people would like it a whole lot more than they do. And I hand you back the conch to see what you think. I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. We did we did a review of the movie when it first came out. Um, and I, I think I was the only one who had positive things to say about it. Uh, and, and then uh, I think we actually did a, a, a commentary, myself and Chris Honeywell, uh, and what I likened it to was you go to, you go to a uh, a nice steakhouse and you order yourself a nice filet mignon and you're sitting there and you're, you're eating and then uh, you, you get some grizzle in it and for some people that grizzle will ruin the entire steak dinner and some people can just kind of cut that grizzle out and eat the rest of the steak and enjoy themselves. I was able to cut the grizzle out. Mm -hmm. 
So that's, but I, I think, I think, you know, the changes that you suggest would probably eliminate the grizzle totally. Yeah, that's the thing. It would have just been one simple change, right? And all that would have been required is have him, because they could have really had some fun with this, because it was the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Everyone, you know, half the audience going in knew that he was con before the movie came out. So what they could have done is played that up, really made it seem like they're going to whitewash him, and then get into the theater. My name is Joaquin. There would have been gasps that would have been audible on the moon, and everybody would have been like, holy shit, I didn't see that coming, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would have gone over so well. And, 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 and you know, it's a shame that it didn't, it didn't occur to them. This is, you know, unfortunately nobody asks me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 unlike yourself, I, I can sit here and say uh, I don't have the talent to be a writer. I, could, I wouldn't have the, the long-term ability to. But I might have enough talent to be a script doctor. Where I could go in and take someone else's and say, you know, maybe just like kind of be a consultant. Well, you should have changed this. You should change that. Because I think I have some good ideas for things like that. Uh, but I couldn't. I could never. You know, I, I try not to be too critical of people who write because I think they have a skill I do not. But I do know what I enjoy and what I don't. Same way I can look at a comic book and say, ooh, this art is not good, even if it's better than anything I could ever draw. Does that make sense now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does, and I'm with you on that. I, I find that when I'm when I'm a, and even though I, I do write, I find that when I'm watching something, it is hard for me to, to distance to distance myself from it if I don't think that that they did everything right. It is difficult for me to cut off that gristle. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it, um, it, see, I, I have this tendency. I've, I've talked about this a lot of late too. I have this tendency slash desire that when I'm watching a movie or a TV show, I want to Im immerse myself as much as I possibly can into the movie. I want to sit there and not watch it as a critic necessarily, which is weird when you have a uh, podcast where you critique movies. Uh, right. But my, my perfect scenario is I watch it once just to enjoy it. And I see how I feel coming out of it. And, I, and I'm letting my mind just kind of, Again, immerse myself. And then in a perfect world, I watch it a second time as a critic. And now I'm starting to look at, you know, see where the cracks are and see where the, the points are where they just did a tremendous editing job or, or you know, the director came up with just the perfect way to, to put a scene together. Uh, but I don't want to do that the first time I watch something. So I'm usually able to cut out the gristle the first time. Sometimes the second time it's not as easy. Yeah, I think time is kind of things. I think we're more likely to, to overlook the dumb parts uh, once our brain accepts that the dumb parts happened. I know that if I watch things I didn't like as much when I was younger, I, I sometimes can enjoy them more. But the reverse is also true. Sometimes I'll watch things I loved as a kid and I go, was I a moron back then? <laughs> this is terrible. The, the biggest um, example I can give but, you of that is the old TV show Gigantor. I I had <laughs> such nostalgia for that show. I've when not they, tried it as an adult. I'm sorry? <laughs> I've not tried that one as an adult. Yeah, I had such nostalgia for it as an adult when they came out with it on VHS tapes. I said, oh, I have to see this. Uh, you know, and really all I remembered was the theme song. Uh, but but when I watched it, I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. 
the other one, and people disagree with me on this one, but the other one that I, I was sorely disappointed with seeing it as an adult uh, was Speed Racer. Two Japanese cartoons, actually. Oh, I, I, that I loved as a kid. I, I'm sure I would hate it now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I say that I, I, mean, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I can imagine it would get on my nerves now. Six Million Dollar Man was a difficult sell for me as an adult, and I really loved that that show when I was a kid. I uh, I, I actually there's there's a website where where you can watch old episodes of that, and I've been I've been thinking about it, but I haven't actually gone there because I'm afraid of exactly what you just said. So we'll see if I ever watch those. I found that the cheese factor gets in the way of of really enjoying it. But I know people who love it and still say it's their favorite show, but I'm not one of them. Well, I do have an ability to read some Silver Age or Golden Age comics and enjoy them despite the absolute silliness and cheese factor of them. So I'm, I might be able to get by it on the $6 million man. We, time will tell. You know, I'm a guy who can reread Gold Key, Star Trek, or the Star Trek British newspaper strips repeatedly, or or the Russ Manning Star Wars newspaper strips. So you'd think I'd be a guy who could re who could watch Six Million Dollar Man because, you know, that's that those old Star Trek stories from the early days are a hunk of cheese like you wouldn't believe, and I'll eat it right up. Um, but I don't know for some reason. I got through, this was like going about 10 years ago, I tried watching Six Million Dollar Man, I got about five episodes in and said, I, I'm i getting dumber by the minute, no can do this. I, I don't think I could do a full series rewatch on the show, to be fair, but I do think yeah. I could probably ascertain through you know a list that I can respect as to which the best episodes are, and it, I think I would be able to just kind of watch those episodes. Uh, you know, maybe I should try that because I didn't think the acting was bad. I just thought the writing was lame and the effects were silly. I, you know, I, I've probably just offended half the audience right now because it's still popular, but it didn't work for me. <laughs> and I apologize to all $6 million man fans. No, at, at the most recent Eternal Con, which I managed to get to one day, they had uh, Lee Majors and, uh, what you call it, uh, also I can't think of her name, uh, the, the Mariana Corman, uh, I, um, I keep thinking Jamie Summers, which that's her character's name. Uh, is her name? My goodness, you talking about the original the or original, the remake? Not the remake. Uh, but they were they um, were both there, and you know they were both showing their age, and you know it, Lindsay, Lindsay Wagner, uh, uh, Lindsay Wagner, yes, yeah, Lindsay Wagner, yeah. Thank you, because that would have bothered me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, it, it, it did fill me with a wave of nostalgia to see the two of them sitting there signing autographs. Uh, on, on that note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a close to our discussion because uh, I have to go back and do some work, uh, sadly. Okay. Uh, but this is great, Rich. Thanks for making some time to talk to me. I appreciate it. Always. Always. And if you do, if you do decide to go into depth on the Star Trek movies, Count me in. You're talking my language there. So. Well, I think first we have to do our Battle for the Planet of the Apes discussion, and then oh, I forgot that. And then next yeah. on our list will be probably to start attacking the Star Trek movies. Yeah, well, let me know whenever you want to do that. Um, you know, if you want to include Zachy or if he's not available, whatever works. All right, sounds like a good plan to me. So. Because I am an unabashed fan of that one, so we might actually have some different opinions Which on one, that one, which on will battle? be fun to discuss. 
Battle, oh no, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan I'm also, but I think Scott. Oh, you I think are. Scott right. is not, so he'll be the he'll be the dissenting voice. As far as I, I know, I've said this in the past with these things that with those five original movies, uh, to me, while some are better than others, certainly uh, there's not a. I don't think that there really is one that counts as being bad. Yeah, I I totally agree, and and that's that's ones where my nostalgia has never dissipated. Uh, you know, at, at, I will never have a point in my life where I don't love those movies. So we can, same here, same here. So thanks again for coming on, and thank you everybody who's been listening to us. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. I hope we haven't offended anybody. I don't. I know Rich didn't say anything that could possibly offend anybody, but you never know if I did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you want me to, I, I, no, I'm not. Gonna. <laughs> but but uh, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>